I'll never tire of London. Hi, I'm Rick Steves, and today on Travel with Rick Steves, it's London through the eyes of two enthusiastic locals. Big Ben, the Tower of London, Westminster Abbey, they're all fine. But now, you'll also notice a distinct multi-ethnic vibe. Now, it'd be very difficult to name a nationality and not be able to find a restaurant for it here in London. Travel writer Neil Taylor looks at the changing ethnic character of his city. And, with the royal wedding date almost here, Londoner Britt Lonsdale is ready for the extra buzz that brings, too. I'm sure you're going to see lots of people in the streets. I don't think the British can ever resist a jolly good royal event. And for a little contrast, we'll learn how one Turkish couple is getting ready for their wedding day. We have some special events prior to the official marriage, like the bridal shower, henna night, and then the gypsy ladies start playing music and singing and dancing. We start drinking, eating, go wild and crazy all night long. Thanks for joining us. It's Travel with Rick Steves. London is one of the most dynamic and multicultural cities on the planet. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. Today on Travel with Rick Steves, we're checking in with two homegrown Londoners to take a look at their city from a couple of different perspectives. Travel writer Neil Taylor joins us in just a moment to talk about the changing ethnic character of the city, which has helped to spice up that notoriously bland British diet. Of course, right now, the big attraction in London is the upcoming royal wedding of Prince William and Kate Middleton. Britt Lonsdale is one of the city's certified blue badge guides, and she'll bring us her suggestions for enjoying the city amid all the excitement surrounding the wedding of the young prince. And speaking of weddings, we'll end the hour visiting with an engaged couple from Turkey as their own wedding day approaches. They'll explain what's expected of two young, modern, educated Turks and the traditions the parents and in-laws hold dear when it comes to a family wedding. We're at 877-333-7425. And we always welcome your comments by email to radio at ricksteves.com. Let's start today's exploration of London by looking into its changing ethnic influences with Neil Taylor. Neil's a London-based writer who authors guidebooks for the Footprints and Brat Guides, and he's also an expert on the Baltic region. Neil, good to have you back. Good to be with you, Rick. Now, Neil, when when you look at your city, how has it changed ethnically in the last generation? In a sense, it was not an ethnic city when I was born here in the late 1940s. One could say it was 100% English. Few groups of refugees in the outskirts from the First World War and from the Second World War. I now live in central London, and it is a total mix. If I go west from my flat, sorry, my apartment, uh, I find myself in a Middle Eastern area. If I go east, I first of all go through a Chinese street, an Italian street, a Turkish street and a Cypriot street. So really, I cross most of Europe and most of Asia within a two or three mile walk of my house. Now, what are the pros and cons of that if you if you live in London? In a sense, I only see the pros, that when I grew up as a child, there was English food, a little bit of American food coming. I remember the excitement of the first glass of Coke and the first hamburger. But now within three miles of my house, if I go west, I find Persian areas, I find Lebanese areas, Syrian restaurants. If I go east, we're now in Broadcasting House, where the BBC transmits from, and immediately in the vicinity here, there's a Chinese road, an Italian road, a Turkish road, and a Greek road. So it is a really interesting international city now. You know, in the old days, English food was kind of notorious for being predictable and bland, and you certainly can't say that about English food now when you remember that English food is really Indian and Chinese and Pakistani and Lebanese and the whole bag, isn't it? It is, yes, a complete cross-section. I think it'd be very difficult to name a nationality and not be able to find a restaurant for it here in London. That's true. One might not find a whole street of, say, Argentinian restaurants or Ethiopian ones, but if that's what you particularly want, within a couple of miles of Broadcasting House, where we are now, I am sure you could find it. Now, in New York, you have, like, ethnic quarters or districts, but in London, it's it's more like ethnic streets. That's the major difference, yes, because I remember from when I first went to New York and was so surprised that there was a Chinese quarter and an Italian quarter. One had to walk quite specifically from one to the other when my early joys of New York was having the first course in Chinatown and then moving down to the Italian quarter and having a suite there. In London, in a sense, it's much easier because it is streets or even street sides. One side could be Chinese and the other side could be Turkish. Such a strong mixture. 
it's a beautiful sort of um, unfolding, changing uh, cityscape. And how does that happen where one street would become Lebanese and the next street would become Persian or something like this? I think it's like with other shops. The antiquarian bookshops congregate together. The general antique furniture shops congregate together, perhaps. So you go to a certain area for going Chinese or going Italian. It has that logic, I think, that one might think, well, do they want competitors? But on the other hand, if there are six good restaurants in a particular street, it's known as the area to be in. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're speaking with Neil Taylor, and Neil uh, is a Londoner who writes guidebooks to Berlin and to Estonia and to the Baltic region, published by Footprints Guides and Brat Guides. Uh, we've got John on the phone in Sonoma, California. John, thanks for your call. Hey, Rick. Uh, how you doing? Good. Got a comment or a question for Neil? Uh, yes. Uh, I was just in uh, London. We went to see the uh, 25th anniversary of uh, Les Miserables there at the O2. And one thing I was so impressed with was uh, the Canary Wharf area and the, the uh, tube uh, stations at Canary Wharf and North Greenwich. It was like being in a futuristic world or something on a movie, and I think we've fallen so far behind here in this country. And we stayed out in Acton Town, which we really enjoyed, very cheap, had a hotel for $90 a night with breakfast. And uh, it, it was just a wonderful experience, and the ethnic diversity was really overwhelming. And I hadn't been there since 1998. I've been to London many times, but the last time was in 98. And I could really see the difference. That's quite a change. Yes. Neil, have you been out to those, um, have you taken the tube out to the, the Docklands? Oh, very much so, yes. There's our London City Airport there, a very convenient connection for other places in the UK and for Europe. And also going west to sort of Acton, because there you do have plenty of ethnic communities living in Acton. Of course, Acton is a poorer community. Canary Wharf is a richer one. So you would get a lovely contrast getting on the tube in Acton and then 45 minutes later getting out in the affluence of Canary Wharf. As a tourist, it's really important to go out to these modern working um, suburbs where, you know, I, I find in London, Neil, maybe you can comment on this, they preserve the uh, cityscape in downtown London more, but you take that fast tube out to the Docklands and, and you see the Manhattan of London, really, uh, sprouting up to the east of downtown. Yes, you do. But equally, you can see areas that are 100 years old or 200 years old. You can go north to Hampstead, a little mm -hmm. bit further to the Hampstead Garden suburb. Now, Hampstead is very much 18th and 19th century. The Hampstead Garden suburb, just the other side of the famous Hampstead Heath, that was built at the beginning of the 20th century. There are many other similar areas of London where a particular time, particular period, is guarded architecturally. Right. Hey, John, thanks for your call. OK, thank you. Bye-bye now. Uh, speaking of changes, Neil, the big news, I think, is the uh, coming of the Olympics in 2012. A pretty low-end, working-class uh, neighborhood or town suburb called Stratford, not, not the Stratford we all think of as tourists where uh, Shakespeare was born, but Stratford, uh, just outside of London, is now being completely worked over, isn't it? That's right, yes. It's going from a miserable sort of run-down 19th-century suburb with lots of bomb damage to the 21st century. It's going to miss out the 20th century very largely, and that's going to have an impact on the minorities that live out there. Oh, very much so. And, of course, a permanent legacy. That's what's so important about the Olympics, that people complain, of course, about the money that it's costing, but the benefits are going to last for decades, perhaps even for centuries, if the buildings are strong enough. Well, I think all of the uh, housing made for the Olympics is destined to be affordable housing for residents of Stratford after the Olympics are long gone. Uh, that, that's right, it will be, yes. And the facilities are so important obesity is a problem in your country and in mine, and there will be the training facilities for the young to get fit and to keep fit. Brilliant. And there'll be good public transit to connect people in Stratford, once run down, now 21st century futuristic suburb, to downtown London efficiently and economically. Yes, and not only to downtown London, of course to Paris. There'll be the stop on the Eurostar at Stratford, the fast trains going to the east and the north, and it's very close to London City Airport, and plenty of local buses too. So a bit of everything as far as public transport is concerned. You know, think about that. You could conceivably commute from Paris to events at the Olympics with the... Uh, oh, with yes, the I'm sure people will. <laughs> There's no doubt about <laughs> that. That is yes. really, really hard to imagine, and it is so today. This is what's happening, and I got that sense when I traveled outside of the, the basic tourist attractions in London. Now, we're talking about the ethnic makeup of London, and all over Europe... Well, everybody's got this gas starbiter sort of dynamic. You know, the Germans sort of made the term when the Turks would come in and, and do a wealthy country's low-end jobs, guest workers. We've got a lot of uh, guest workers who will 
work in our fields and clean our homes uh, cheaper than what a lot of us would work for. And that's just sort of a reality in this world. In London, you have this huge influx of uh, ethnic uh, groups. Is this a post-colonial thing, or is this people looking for opportunity? Or how do you explain this huge influx of people from all over the world to London, of all places? It started as a colonial legacy that we allowed people from our former empire to come and work here. In fact, in the late 1950s, we really encouraged them to do so. The work that we locals were not prepared to do, so they came from the West Indies, they came from India. In the case of Hong Kong, they were first refugees from China and then saw opportunities in coming to Britain. Much more recently, it's been the EU and the freedom of movement uh, in the European Union um, that people from... Eastern Europe, from Southern Europe, can basically all come to Britain and work here. And, of course, a lot of British people now go and work elsewhere in the EU. Now, there's a lot of ugliness to the post-colonial realities of European international empires, and I think it's fascinating to compare how France is dealing with it and how Britain is dealing with it. And my hunch is there's a little bit of difference between England's relationship with its former colonies than other European powers because of this concept of the Commonwealth. It gives you a little advantage and a little more, maybe, compassion. Can you talk about that a bit? I would think so, yes. I mean, the French Empire ended with wars. There was the Dien Bien Phu battle in 1954, which then led to the tragic involvement of the United States in Vietnam, a long war in Algeria in the late 1950s, the complication that the colonies were all occupied during the Second World War when France itself was occupied and then came back to being colonies. I think the transition in Britain was much smoother, starting immediately after the Second World War with India and Pakistan, and then continuing through the 1950s and 1960s. So perhaps that has led to better relations between the former colonies than France has. Because among colonial powers, this notion of the Commonwealth was unique to Britain, I believe. Uh, Yes, yes, certainly, yes. I mean, the French do have links with their former territories, and of course they still have current territories. They're very keen to stress that Martinique and Guadeloupe in the Caribbean are what they call overseas provinces, département outre-mer, so parts of France which are not actually part of the mainland, but have the privileges of being part of domestic France and using the euro, and of course citizens from there can then work elsewhere in the EU and have all the benefits of being a citizen of an EU country, even though they're thousands of miles from mainland Mm -hmm. France. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're speaking with Neil Taylor, who's a travel writer and a Londoner. We're talking about changes in London. Oi, pal, get your ears around this. We'll finish looking at the changing ethnic face of London in a post-colonial world with Neil Taylor in just a moment. Then, Blue Badge Guide Britt Lonsdale explains how you can enjoy the traditions of British society amid all the to-do surrounding the upcoming royal wedding, and how that event promises to boost the fun you'll likely encounter in London later this month. There's a celebration around every corner today. It's Travel with Rick Steves. A Guide to London joins us in a few minutes to help us enjoy the city, even if throngs of people are about to fill the streets, hoping for a glimpse of the royal wedding procession. In case you hadn't heard, Prince William and Kate Middleton will be married on Friday, April 29th in Westminster Abbey. Later in the hour, we'll contrast that with a look at a Turkish couple's wedding preparations. 
where local customs have a way of turning the betrothed into their family's own royal couple. How do you see the issue of immigrants coming in and either assimilating or squatting? Well, I think squatting is unfair because large numbers of them do assimilate. I think the problem is that a lot of local people, in fact, lose their assimilation. The immigrants come and work hard, and local people who've perhaps been exploiting the benefit system get jealous of the immigrants simply because the immigrants get up early, realise they have to work hard, it's a tough environment, and very rarely opt out. Too many local people just sort of opt out and live on benefits, and I think that's perhaps a US problem too. Right. How do you encourage people to work whilst providing benefits for those who genuinely need them because they actually can't work or can't find work? It's a complicated issue for Europe as well as the United States. I know in much of Europe, people are concerned that immigrant communities come in and have no interest in, in embracing the local culture, learning the language, or letting their kids engage with the mainstream community, and that ruffles local feathers. Is, is that a concern in London? I don't think so. Partly, of course, because English is such a crucial language internationally. Mm -hmm. So one of the major reasons for people coming to work here is that they hope to improve their English because that is a marketable tool anywhere else. If they go and work in a restaurant in Greece or in Spain or in Italy, they will need to speak English because that's the language most of the foreign tourists will speak. I mean, if, say, a tourist from Germany or Sweden goes to Spain, they are very likely going to want the hotel staff to speak English. That will be the common language. The Swedish person won't speak Spanish, and, of course, the Spanish person or the immigrant working there is not going to speak Swedish. But English will be the bond between them. So this is a great bonus here that people come and feel they have to study, have to learn, have to get English language qualifications, whether they stay here or whether they return home and get mm. a better job because back home, whichever country they've come from, English language is a marketable skill there too. You know, you just straighten something out in my mind there because I've got friends in the Netherlands who are are frustrated with their immigrants that come into the Netherlands and never learn any Dutch. But if you're an immigrant going to London, you're there to learn English because that's your window into a, a future of opportunity. Yes, I mean, I feel that these people, probably your colleagues in Holland, are thinking, well, Dutch isn't spoken anywhere else. Why should I bother if I can <laughs> get a menial job here for a year? I may then move to France or may then move to Germany. And there we have go. the advantage, in a sense, of people coming here have to speak English because there's no other possible common language here. That's right, and that gets back to my original observation. Next time you walk down the streets in London, listen to the language. The first language of London is English as a second language. That's right, yes. I mean, perhaps you have the parallel with Spanish in the U.S., that you can probably have a very good career just speaking Spanish, but there isn't a similar example in the U.K. There's no point in having fluent French or fluent German, even though there are neighbouring countries, because too few people here would be able to use them as a second language. Neil Taylor, thanks for sharing your perspective on multi-ethnic London. Thank you, Rick. It's been nice talking to you. This month in London, the festivities center on the royal family, with the royal wedding day almost here. From the BBC studios at Broadcast House, we turn our London microphone over now to Britt Lonsdale for her tips on how, wedding or not, you can include some of the royal sightseeing in your next visit to London. It's big news in Britain. Prince William and the commoner Kate Middleton are engaged, and we're joined by Britt Lonsdale, a blue badge guide in London, to find out exactly what's the buzz. Britt, thanks for joining us. I'm delighted to be here. Is there a buzz in London with the royal wedding coming up? Well, I think you could say there was. Um, I think people are pretty happy for them. They seem very nice. They seem very well suited. Um, it's uh, sometimes quite difficult to separate the reality from all the press speculation and chat. I can only speak for myself, of course, but I think they seem really nice and pretty happy with each other and uh, certainly very good luck to them. Yeah. Do you feel like in England, is it sort of annoying if you're just listening to all of the, the hype for this, or is it something that's a national celebration? 
you know, it's a very difficult thing because there's a terrific paradox with British people because uh, we love all the pomp and circumstance that goes with the royal family. But certainly not everybody is an ardent royalist and some people um, tut at it. But uh, I think you'd have to have a heart of stone not to be um, quite um, happy for them. They seem very nice. And uh, my kids in particular absolutely delighted not because they're ardent royalists but because they get a day off school all right (laughs) so they're thrilled about that kate and william had quite a lengthy courtship didn't they well yes they did they met when they were at st andrews university which uh, i don't know if you've ever been to st andrews of course people tend to associate golf with it but the university buildings and the town is absolutely beautiful so it's a wonderful setting and i think they were very much left alone so i think it was something that was allowed to develop naturally and uh, they undoubtedly had obviously they were surrounded by lots and lots of friends there and uh, Probably it was something that was sort of fairly organic, I would imagine, and developed slowly. They've been a number for over a decade, haven't they? I think so, yes. Yeah. What's, the, what's the biggest thing that comes to mind when you think about their courtship? How have they been in the news in the last decade? There's been an awful lot of information about them, but a lot of it we don't know, of course, because there's so much in the press, we don't know what's accurate and what really isn't uh, accurate. We've got the bare bones of um, their their lives, if you like. We know um, that she was brought up in a, a, an ordinary, a relatively ordinary middle-class family, but uh, privately educated, went to Marlborough College, which is one of the great private schools of, of England. So certainly she's... Um, so she's a commoner, but her parents made a lot of money in their business, I understand. Yes, yeah. yes, yes, absolutely. They sound like they're a very hard-working family, and also they sound like they were a very close-knit family, which I can't mm-hmm. imagine wouldn't uh, count for something. And then the, uh, the parents have to get to know each other, I guess. Yes, I suppose so. I suppose so. But I think the very fact that they are marrying means that uh, things are probably okay on on that front. Funnily enough, I I remember um, once, some time back, I was uh, walking home with the children to my house and I was pretty frazzled. It was a hot day and I had my kids following me and a young lady stopped in a car asking the way to Queen's Club, which is a tennis club close to my house and uh, I looked at the girl and thought gosh what a very beautiful girl and it was only after I'd given her directions and she drove off that I suddenly realized that it was indeed Catherine Middleton who had just uh, gone past me. Uh, She's even more pretty in the flesh than she is in the pictures. She really was uh, quite stunning. So now she's an untitled commoner. Is that that a big concern Mm -hmm. uh, among royals? I don't think so. I think, in fact, it's... Well, I don't know. I can't certainly can't speak for right. any royals, but I think for most people, the fact that uh, perhaps marrying outside a very tight-knit circle is probably quite a good thing. Now, does the Queen approve as, of William's fiance, as far as you know? Well, you know, I, I'm not privy to the Queen's <laughs> uh, <laughs> private and innermost thoughts, but I can't believe that she wouldn't be pleased. They seem, I mean, they seem I, well-suited. I mean, it just seems like a yeah, real celebration in England. Yeah, They seem like mates. They seem like they're good friends as well, which, of course, is <laughs> probably more important than anything, I would think, in a marriage. Yeah. Tell us about the groom. Tell us about uh, the, the oldest son of Charles and Diana. I think he seems a nice, straightforward kind of guy from everything that I've seen. I mean, you you know, you read an awful lot of nonsense in the press, and so it's very hard to know what, what to really believe. But I think he, he seems like a very genuine and uh, sweet guy. I know that, uh, you know, most people were so distressed at the thought of a boy of 15 losing his mother in mm-hmm. such circumstances. So I think most people are really very fond of William. Now, the wedding is going to be April 29. Mm-hmm. I, I would imagine it's going to be pandemonium. What, what's tips for uh, Americans that will be traveling in England uh, during that period? Do you know I was talking about this with my kids even today, and I was saying, gosh, I wonder what should we do? Should we watch it on television? Should we go along? Um, I should imagine things will be getting pretty booked out uh, mm-hmm. for for that period. But, of course, it's going to be a bit of a problem in a way for lots of head teachers in England because um, a lot of the schools will have just finished their Easter holiday and my children in fact I was just looking at their term dates are going to be going back on the 27th of April and then if the wedding is on the 29th of April and there's a long holiday because the following Monday is a bank holiday I'm rather wondering if a lot of people aren't going to just choose to extend their Easter holiday and stay away for the two-day gap in between the end of the Easter holiday and the royal wedding. 
So I'm sure you're going to see lots of people in the streets. I, I don't think the British can ever resist a jolly good royal event. Mm-hmm. I know when I'm traveling around uh, England, whenever there happens to be a royal in town, it's, it stops traffic. It's big news. It is, and it's sort of exciting, and it's exciting... Um, you know, you're you're kind of excited in spite of yourself. Uh, I suppose in a way sometimes people treat it as a sort of like a big soap opera, but of course it's their lives, and so <laughs> you know, that's it's not true. really a soap opera to them. There's a lot of people who I sense are sort of nonplussed by the whole royalty thing, and, and then one of the royals goes down the street and they're out on the curb just as excited as the next person. Yeah, you're so right. That's exactly it. In fact, actually, the the daft thing is, is that if you, you, for example, if you ask my husband, Simon, if you said, Simon, what do you think of the royal family? Um, He would probably see something dreadful like shoot the lot, but he loves every parade and he's always there and he loves watching Trooping the Colour, the Queen's official birthday parade, and he enjoys all the pomp and circumstance that goes with it. So there's a terrific paradox in the British head, I'm afraid. So I think we'll have the pageantry of the royal family around for a long time to come. I know Charles and Diana were married in St. Paul's. Where, where will the uh, the next wedding be? It's going to be in Westminster Abbey. That's where they've chosen. Um, and I just think that's a marvelous place for it to be. I mean, oh, the yeah. abbey is so ancient. There's been a church on that site since the 600s and possibly before. And the fabric of the building today dates mm. mostly from the 13th and 14th century. And it's utterly beautiful inside. And they'll build scaffolding so lots of people can be there? I should imagine there will be seating in the transepts, um, mm-hmm. just as there was maybe for the Queen's coronation, or maybe not. I mean, we'll have to see. Everything works on, you know, we can never be entirely sure until it actually happens exactly what uh, will go on. There'll certainly be a massive amount of scaffolding outside with all the press corps banked up outside wanting to get those special pictures, I should imagine. I'm Rick Steves. We're talking with Britt Lonsdale. Britt is a Blue Badge Guide in London, and we're talking about the upcoming royal wedding, April 29 in London. Prince William and the commoner, Kate Middleton. Britt, we all remember the incredible, glamorous, glorious wedding of Prince Charles and Diana. If you were to psychoanalyze that ceremony and and what you expect will happen on April 29th, how will it be different? I think it'll be different because they're very different people and also because of what's gone before. I think there's much more of an awareness of the uh, pressures on royals and uh, certainly the feeling that, uh, you know, there'd be no no wish to sort of uh, bring up the past in any way. This is a new thing. They're, they're two young people the same age, getting married, and uh, in a way it's a, it's a lovely thing to see that they've found happiness together. It almost seems like more of a, of a normal couple. Yes, it's interesting that you use that word because, of course, when um, Charles married Diana, there was quite an age gap, wasn't there? So right. it's uh, and these guys are these are just college friends. William and Kate are, yeah. are college buddies. They're the same. Yes, age. Yes, I suppose so. It seems to be perhaps a little less stuffy. I'm not saying that the previous right. situation was stuffy particularly, but it seems to be. Um, uh, I don't know. They just they just seem jolly nice kids, really. <laughs> That's great. Hey, if we're in London during this season and we want to get kind of clued into you know, the royal heritage of Britain. What are some sightseeing ideas? What, what can people do to get clued into the, all the royal uh, family and, and the heritage? Well, certainly guides love chatting about it. So if you've got somebody taking mm-hmm. you around, they can tell you a lot of information. But if you wanted to have pictures of the royal family, of course, I know one of your favorites is the National Portrait Gallery, where you can get some wonderful uh, pictures, current pictures, in fact, of members mm-hmm. of the royal family. I love that gallery. The Portrait Gallery, it's free. And they've got these beautiful portraits of the royal family, the contemporary portraits, and then uh, previous generations as well. Much better than Madame Tussauds, we must say. And then where You're else so would we right. Go? And it's such a gem. And a lot of people overlook it, to be quite honest. They're too busy going into the National Gallery. Yeah, but... just around the corner from the National Gallery off Trafalgar Square, it's free, the National Portrait Gallery. Mm, I couldn't agree more. Also, you could go to the Tower of London. You could see the crown jewels. You've got the Imperial State Crown. Uh, with nearly 3,000 diamonds in it. The oh, has, and pearls. And, and you can talk to. to the guards there. You have to go on that moving sidewalk up close. But then, once yes. you've done that, you can circle around and stand on the little platform behind as long as you want and chat with the guards and ask them, what's the crown? Who wears it? What's the, anything you want? Yeah. And they love to talk. They love to talk, don't they? Because they're bored stiff otherwise. <laughs> uh, they really do enjoy it. And, of course, they have plenty of time to look at them, and so they, they can tell you a great deal about them. But uh, it's just lovely to be able to, to see them and to see all the other bits and pieces. You've got some wonderful, wonderful uh, 
plate and uh, oh, you've yeah. got uh, the lily font and all sorts of interesting things. So that's things. the big deal at the Tower of London. Now, on um, wedding day, I would imagine there'll be some royal carriages clip-clopping through town. Definitely, and you could go and see them anyway, before or after. You could go and see the carriages in the Royal Mews just behind Buckingham Palace. You have to be specific about checking that it's open because it has some um, interesting opening times depending on the time of year. But you can see the coronation coach, of course. You can also see the glass coach, which tends to be used for royal brides. And you can see all sorts of horsey memorabilia because, of course, the royal family are all very keen riders. And so there's an awful lot of stuff in there for those of uh, uh, an equestrian bent. And you can talk to some of the grooms and see the horses as well. And they'll tell you all about their temperament. And, of course, you've got to see the changing of the guard when you're in London. Yes, I think the changing of the guard is one of those things that you always have to see. It's a bit of a rite of passage. You know, it's something that you probably will never need to see twice. <laughs> but it's such a laugh to enjoy the soldiers' uniforms and to hear a little bit about them and to just watch the whole spectacle. Well, at a minimum, we'll all be able to watch the wedding on TV, I'm sure of that. And next time you're in London, there are plenty of ways that you can plug in to the royal heritage of Great Britain. Hey, Britt Lonsdale, thank you so much for joining us. And, and just finishing up, i just like, as a British citizen, what are your concerns, hopes, or wishes for Kate Middleton as she marries William and joins the royal family? You ask me as a British citizen, but I would say that just as a woman, I would think, I would hope that she copes well and that she manages to fit into her situation. She seems an absolutely lovely girl and uh, I just hope it's not too stressful or pressurised for her. I'm sure she'll be well protected in view of what's gone before. I can't imagine that there isn't a heightened level of an awareness of the sort of uh, momentous things she'll be taking on because, of course, her every minute will be prescribed from now on. I should imagine uh, it's not the sort of life that... I would want, certainly, but uh, I hope she manages to make it through. She seems really sensible and down-to-earth. Well, with that, with that in mind, I think we'll all give Kate our best wishes as her happy day approaches. <laughs> hey, here. All right, Britt, thanks so much for joining us. It was a pleasure. A royal wedding can be a first-rate attraction if you're planning to visit London. But what if it's your own wedding that everybody's fussing over? Up next, a couple from Turkey who are about to get married explain what modern Turks do to tie the knot. And they'll talk about the many traditions that a Turkish couple are expected to observe as their wedding day gets closer. Many happy returns. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Rick Steves'le birlikte seyahat edelim. That was Turkish for Less Traveled with Rick Steves. In Turkish again, Rick Steves'le birlikte seyahat edelim. A celebration of marriage is such a beautiful time all over the world and every culture has its own way to make sure this is a very, very special occasion in the life of the couple that's getting married. And I've got two friends from Turkey who are getting married, Mine and Mert, Mine Karahan and Mert Tanner from Istanbul. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. We want to know about how things are going. So you're, when are you getting married? We're getting married next month. Next month? Yes. Oh, my goodness. Who asks the question when you get engaged? How does that work Actually, in Turkey? Actually, first, it must be a relation because arranged marriage story is totally over in Turkey. 
So there's no more arranged. There's no more arranged marriage. These are first, love marriages. Exactly. So this first, is a love marriage we're talking exactly. about Exactly. No, the way that met was kind of blind date. Maybe we should talk about that. We had a common yeah. friend oh, yeah. who introduced each other to us. And then I, I had no hope, you know, when he kept mentioning about Mert's name. Yeah. And I had no hope because I tell you this. My mom, when I was in my early 20s, she kept telling me, Mine, I want you to get married to a Muslim and a Turkish. When I was in my mid-20s, she started telling me, just Muslim is enough. And when I was in my early 30s, she started telling me, maybe just, get just, married. Yeah, maybe just, just Turkish. So you found this guy. And then after that, now she says, get married to someone. Now, so, Mert, you're Turkish. I'm Turkish, but my family background is mixed. My okay. mother is actually Jewish. My father is Muslim, so I'm a God believer. You're a God believer. I'm a Muslim or father not? Muslim, mother Jewish. Okay. I'm a God believer. And Mine, what is your family? I, uh, I was born as a Muslim. So this person. is a concern of parents. They they hope mm-hmm. generally their kids will marry within a Turkish community yes, and within. Yes, that's what they that's what they want because they most of the people don't have much contact, especially in my hometown. Now, who who does the planning for the wedding? Well, uh, we're doing together, actually. Yeah, but tra- we're doing together. Tradi- traditionally. But like a traditionally, it's quite different because traditional part, especially Western and Central part of Turkey, wedding is a job of the groom's family. The groom's family. Because groom's family... Yeah. And the groom's pay family for, pays for it. They pay for it. All, all the expenses. Different than America. Exactly. Now, in America, it seems like a good way to test the relationship before you're legally married exactly. is to have to plan the wedding. Yeah. Do you, you know, understand what I'm saying? I understand what you said. And actually, me and Mine, we're the modern phase of the Turkey. Like, we're living in Istanbul and Kushadas, which is very Western part. Lifestyle is so Westernized. And we live together for nearly one so and a half years. these days in Turkey, young people live together before they get married? In the West or in the big cities, nowadays, but it in, is becoming. You know, in it's my not a big opinion, taboo. yeah, we do live together, but our parents don't know about it. They don't? They don't. So we won't tell them about this show? No. Okay. <laughs> no, no, no. It's they okay. know, but they don't want to know. They pretend of... that they don't oh, know. Oh, I see. So it's, and you let them have that convenient ignorance. Yes, okay. absolutely. Well, in one month, it'll be no more issue. So this absolutely. is very exciting. Now, how does the wedding play out? Actually, it's pretty much the same as, you know, you have in the United States. Yeah. But we have some other special events prior to the official marriage, like uh, Hannah night, like the bridal shower kind of. That we call a Turkish tag party. A Turkish tag party? What is it? And then some kind of uh, bachelor's night for the guys. Really? Okay. Well, so first let's talk about the henna henna night. Yes. That sounds pretty exotic. It is. Tell me, are boys allowed? No. Only girls? No, only girls. What do you do? What do we do? Um, In my hometown, let's say in my hometown, uh, the girls' family organizes this henna night. And my mom is the one who prepares for the henna night. And she invites, you know, like the family, friends and all these people. We come together. We drink. What do you drink? Usually chai, tea. Mm-hmm. I mean, there is no alcohol. And then mm-hmm. lots of nuts and things like that. And then music and dance all night long. Girls. All girls. All La- girls. Live music or, or like on a mm, uh, You know, if CD. you can afford it, live music. Or if not, then... Everybody brings something in, like different So everybody's cities. up and snapping their everybody's, arms, yeah. shaking yeah, everybody's their shoulders. Yeah, but like at the beginning, they always start to sing with one traditional song, which is actually a little bit sorrowful. With the song. candles. They hold okay. the candles over there and <laughs> because girl is leaving her home. Oh, a so small this bird. is the ritual. It's the a ritual. And it's the henna night ritual. Yeah. And that's why like, it becomes a sorrowful party. And usually at the first song, mother of a bride, she's supposed to cry. Because she, her precious living the home. Her, her, I don't think my mom is going to cry. Her precious, her precious <laughs> I mean, think she's happy. Well, yeah, now you're old enough where she just wants you to leave the house. Okay. So yeah. now what is, tell me about the henna, actually. Yeah. Actually, I wear some uh, really nice dress with yeah. embroidery. Yeah. And then I have a kind of a, a scarf, but it should be red. Right. And I always, it's kind of a veil. And I just cover it, cover my face with the veil. And I just walk through the girls holding the candles. And then I now, just go. And, now, why red? Why red? Because it's the bridal color somehow. Okay. The so, dress is white, but the veil is oh, red. Oh, so the, the dress is white. Yeah. The veil is red. Yes. And then there's a lot more different colors on the dress and the embroidery. The bride just walks through in the middle of the room and then sits down on the chair. And then uh, there's a big silver plate with henna in it. Uh, and you mix henna with water. 
What is henna? Henna is some kind of green powder. Herb, that, that herb actually. An herb, a green herb. herb. It's, it's, green it's, herb. A, it's a green herb. And, and it's a dye for your skin. It's, absolutely. It's a dye for your skin. We get it from India. So uh, you mix it with water and then... The uh, groom's uh, the mother. Fu- your future mother-in-law. My future mother-in-law. She comes to your henna night. She does. And wow. she should put one big piece of coin, gold coin, to my hand, to my palm. And then over it, just, you know, puts the henna. And then they wrap my hand. So, and then... What's uh, the symbolism for that? It's the first money that I receive from... It's like kind of like uh, fertility... And then happy marriage oh, so it's a, a symbol. It's a, for a best wishes kind for of thing. For the best wishes. So she puts the coin on your palm, she f- covers you with henna, and mm-hmm. then she ties your palm yeah. closed around she the coin. She closes my palm, and then she, she I, I put kind of a glove. It's the smallest handcuff of the world, be sure. <laughs> it's the handcuff. <laughs> exactly. Oh, now that's an interesting thing. So your mother-in-law comes over and basically ties you up and takes you into her family. Yes, that's wow. the symbol. That's, That's the, the symbol. symbol. Okay, now you're drinking tea, you're giggling, you're mm-hmm. dancing. It's just girls. It's just girls. How long does the party last? Uh, depends on the performance of the DJ, usually. Oh, there's a DJ. Okay. so well, Usually there's like a, one of my friends. So it's a party. It's a party. Can so I add I, something? But in modern girls in Istanbul or in Izmir, Antalya. They do it in a bar. They do it in a big club. Oh, it's like a hen party. Even they had some Chippendale shows. Some sort there. of some yeah. boy dancers coming in. Boy dancers. I saw one. <laughs> no, this is an extreme. No, that's extreme in, uh, in no. the big city. Okay, in the big city. But, but in the small town, it's girls giggling, dancing, telling stories. Absolutely, and then the candles, and then henna, and eating, drinking. So it's a party for the girls. Okay, that's the girls. Let's go to the boys here. Yes, uh, uh, Merit. <laughs> do the Turkish guys who are getting married do they have a stag party? Absolutely, but we get a two different type of stag parties. First, the modern one. It's exactly the same with you can find in the U.S. Just like in the U.S. Exactly, okay. but the traditional one is different because this is a place where you. Perform your manhoods, especially in the villages of Bodrum. Excuse me, you perform <laughs> your, your manhood. manhood, but not any different ways. First of all, in if you go to Bodrum, like the villages, like Etrim, Sasque, I've been in some male stock parties. First, they bring the all the hunting guns, oh. and they put the empty bottles of wines and rakis. So, and <laughs> they walk like a hundred and fifty yards. You have to hit the bottles, and the one who hits the bottles always the father of groom gives a one gold coin <laughs> as a gift. Wow. And after that, they like uh, start to make the big party fire and then a nice meat or like uh, they put the lamb Okay, on so you're skewer. shooting guns, you're eating red meat. Exactly. This and then the lots guys. of rocky. Rocky. So the girls have tea and the guys have rocky. Turkish fire water. Turkish yes. fire water. Exactly. Lion's milk. <laughs> lion's, before, that's that's lion's, milk. lion's milk. The lion's you, milk. You know the reason because... <laughs> When you blend the water with water, it becomes cloudy white. Yes. Yeah. That's why Turkish the lion's call it milk. lion's milk. I it looks get like it. buttermilk. Yeah. It looks like exactly. Well, it's important for your steak party. <laughs> Mert Tener and Mina Karahan work as tour guides in their native Turkey. They're our guests right now on Travel with Rick Steves as we learn of the preparations they're making leading up to their fast-approaching wedding day. Mine, you have a bridal hammam. Is, mm-hmm. that, is that another event? This is another event. And we, we have a bridal shower, and of course, hammam means bath. So yes. literally, this would be the bridal bath. This is going to be the bridal bath before is... the bride gets married. It's okay. like it's symbolic. It's symbolic, and it's so much fun. So what I will do is I will invite my girlfriends, like 10, 15 girls. I first go to the bath and arrange the bath for the party. You know, like for two hours, and everybody brings. So you hire in. out the community bath in Turkey. The the village would have a public bath where everybody goes and and uh, yes. steams and scrubs and everything. You hire the whole place. You for hire your friend. the whole place for the party. Wow! You don't want anybody else to come. Just you and your friends. Just me and my friends. We have gypsy ladies performing, so I hire them too. There are three gypsy ladies coming. How does a gypsy lady perform? Gypsy lady dances. And uh, plays the musical instrument because the, most of the gypsies in Turkey are very good musicians. In the hammam. In the hammam. So you're naked. Sure. Uh, no, actually, we're not naked. Because traditionally, is, when you go to a hammam, people don't have their clothes on. But for the bridal hammam, it's different. Okay. You wear we have something, a special towel. No, for the bridal <laughs> one, you don't. How know would that you one. know? You've never been in there. You don't I hope. know. Okay. I always want to be. <laughs> you know, it's it's like a it's like a bed dress, okay. you know, like a, kind a, of like yeah, a nightgown. A, a peshtemal or something? No, it's it's something really nice with lace work. Oh, that's nice. You know, so this is super elegant then. Okay. Elegant thing. But, you know, it's it's like the, something that you, you wear before you go to bed. Okay. But it's it's not peshtemal. So everybody 
I give, I, I supply it's, the it's material. A, it's a nighty for your bridal hammam. Yes, it's okay. a nighty. It's a nighty for the bridal hammam, and I supply it. I provide it for all my friends. Nice. So they come, change, enter. And everybody should bring something in, some food, something to drink. Of course, this time not tea. This time some wine, some vodka, some whiskey or whatever. You know, something to go wild and crazy. Rick, okay. I want to be in that part. <laughs> <laughs> no way. Get out. Married patience. You'll be married so, in a little while. And then the girls all come and the ladies start performing. And then the, the, the gypsy ladies. The gypsy ladies start performing, playing music and singing and dancing. Most of these gypsy ladies are like big ladies, so they can dance very well. This traditional Turkish dance, you know, like this belly dance. Yeah, and because skinny is not beautiful when it comes to belly dancing. Absolutely. You have to Come have on, the real meat. belly dancer must be... Ample. Um, yeah. No, you, Ample. I've never Fluffy. seen any lean one so far in my life. Oh, that'd be I think a, you need a, to a be lean able belly to... dancer, like change the it channel. must be belly. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> so, and then uh, we start drinking, eating, really having fun time, go wild and crazy. While the attendants come and start to give us some exfoliation and then... Exfoliation, you know, explain. It's, okay, what is exfoliation? There, there is something called... Um, Scrub. Or oh, the mitten, loofer. like the Brillo loofer. pad mitten. You've got these... You, sponge you got, or loofer. You, you, yeah. you have uh, the loofah and then the lady would come with the loofah. Everybody will have their own loofahs and then would just... Scrub your... So a loofah is a, a, like a rough sponge you hold to... It's to, like a rough sponge. You, and when you clean your skin in a very brutal way, it, just it, take, it takes your that, Maybe that skin, and takes, after that, the baby bump skin comes up. So you feel, you feel like a baby, and, okay, but it gets done. a little red. So you get exfoliated. Okay, excuse me. Then you carry on. Yeah, yeah and uh, you have this, um, the, the massage, the yep. soap massage, the bubbly, oh, yeah. bubbly soap massage. Nice. And everybody has different... Has, has got something else to do. You know, while I'm dancing, somebody else is having the massage. While somebody else is having the oil massage, somebody else is like, you know, eating. Imagine it's like eating the uh, Like the, the Romans. The grapes, like the, the Romans. Yeah. And then they just lay down. And, and the gypsy their, ladies are playing. And the gypsy ladies are playing and they give a break. And whenever they give a break, we offer them something to eat. Of course, they deserve something you, to eat. You know, Mert, I think Mine's party sounds much nicer than yours. <laughs> I'm not going to give you all the details of the man's party. Okay, ends. okay, okay. Well, okay. So, Mert, the, the man plans the wedding. Explain the wedding to us. First of all, Turkey is a one country where we have no church marriage. So it's all a marriage has wedding. to be a secular state marriage. Okay. It depends on where you organize your wedding. If you organize your wedding in a big five-star hotel... You hire a big place. So it's, it's not a priest or a Muslim cleric that officiates. It would be a, a judge or somebody no, from the... No, it's actually the special clerks assigned by local mayor. So it's the city office man that comes city to the City office man comes and so makes it... So he makes it legal. Exactly. Do some people who are very religious have another uh, ritual? After marriage, if they want in their home, within the, their four walls, they can fix it. How long is that actual ceremony, the legal ceremony? The actual ceremony actually takes like a three or four minutes. So the, the actual wedding is very small, and it's just very all of small. these festivals that go on. Actually, now. what happens, apart from bride and groom, they usually bring two other witnesses. These witnesses are very important because they must be their close friend or... So that's the whole legal thing. Someone who arranged all that marriage before. Who okay, so you got them. married. Do you have vows at the wedding? Kind of. Actually, what happens? Or is it, a, not, is it dictated by the, the government? You uh, read yes, this? Exactly. It's a special text. So just read this, sign here. Mm -hmm. Exactly. You're married. That's You're right. married. Get That's out all. next. And now what right. happens? <laughs> do, do you have uh, rings? Yes. Yes. Are, are, you have an engagement ring and then a wedding no, ring? No, we have a, actually, offering ring is usually like yours and diamonds. Ah, this, okay. is a so typical got, this is a simple little gold engagement ring? Engagement and marriage ring. No. When you get engaged, yeah. you put the rings on your right hand. Okay. But when you get married, you change the hand from ah. the left hand. Good. You just now, take it here and then put it to here. Oh, that's nice. So you can ring. tell somebody on the streets if they, if they see Merck and they're interested. They say, ah, he's engaged. But yeah. I have already put it in my right hands. Oh, so you're really locked up. Because there are three rings on a man's life. First one is engagement ring. Second one is wedding ring. Third one is suffering Oh, my goodness. <laughs> that works in <laughs> Turkish and English, huh? Now, exactly. So then the big family feast after that, is there some kind of a family party? Big party, dinner, like a Turkish weddings are generally big fun. And you get together, then you have many generations together. People are just so happy for you. Yes. So we're at the party, and uh, after the official marriage takes place, uh, we just line up, me, Mert, and the witnesses, mm -hmm. and the parents, my parents, and his parents. And the guests will come one by one. We have pictures together. And then after that, the senior ones will come up 
and then I will kiss first. So, so the these are the old people, the seniors, the, grandma uh, the seniors, and grandpa. The okay. seniors, grandma and grandpa, <clears throat> they will just come. First, they would give me the little gold, whatever they brought. It could be like a necklace, a bracelet, bracelet or whatever. Okay. Yeah, and then first they put that one, and then they just, you know, let me kiss their hand and put their hand on my forehead, which is a sign for respect. It's an expression of respect for an elderly person. And then they kiss me on my cheeks, and the same for him. And they would say, bir yastıkta kocayın, which means, May you grow all together in one pillow. I love that. May you grow old together on one pillow. That's my wish for both of you. Thank you very much. Mine and Mert, best wishes. Thank you. Thank you. Tell us how you've been inspired in your travels in the form of an original haiku poem. The radio section of our website at ricksteves.com has details on how to send us your submissions. Here are some recent examples of what listeners have sent us. Here's what some of our listeners have written from their travels in Turkey. Michael Brown of Chicago had this encounter in the Sultan Ahmet Old Town District of Istanbul. What a nice hat, sir. Warm welcome to Istanbul. Come in and buy a carpet. Sylvia Haven from Seattle shares what she recalls from a fleeting moment at a small retreat center near Fethiye on the Mediterranean coast of Turkey. Lifetime memory. Watching sunsets from Tahum. Suddenly, green flash. And Jean Andrianoff of Port Ludlow, Washington, writes this metaphor for the politically divided island of Cyprus. Oranges and lemons at Bellapay Abbey, two fruits from one tree. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton with Sarah McCormick at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. Thanks to our colleagues at the BBC in London and to haiku reader Keith Stickelmeyer for helping with today's show. You'll find many interviews from past editions of the show arranged by the countries we discuss. They're available to download to your portable player or smartphone. Look for the Rick Steves Audio Europe links on our website at ricksteves.com or as an app at iTunes. And join us again next week for more Travel with Rick Steves. And they would say, Bir yastıkta kocayın. Which means, may you grow all together in one pillow. Rick Steves teaches smart European travel. At ricksteves.com, you'll find an archive of interviews from his radio show, free audio tours of Europe's top sites, a monthly travel newsletter, and a world of information to help you turn your European travel dreams into smooth and affordable reality. To gear up for your next European adventure, begin your trip at ricksteves.com.